the Aziz Ansari story. I mean, that, that must have come at huge personal cost to him, the fact that we published that. Even though we were nobody and, and he was a, the biggest star of Netflix, it still came at a big personal cost to him that we published that story. And the fact that a great magazine journalist eventually sort of came for us and picked apart the way our organisation worked and the way I had behaved and the totally chaotic and, and immature way that I had managed my news operation, that was fair. Yoshi Herman is the founder of a local news outlet called The Mill. It's based in Manchester in England and it recently got to profitability. It's based entirely on Substack. And now Yoshi's expanded it with publications in Sheffield and Liverpool. In a prior life, he was the editor-in-chief at a digital media startup in New York that published the story that got the comedian Aziz Ansari cancelled. We talked today about business models for local news, what that Aziz Ansari controversy was like from the inside, and how these experiences are shaping Yoshi's views on the new media economy. It's quite an emotional interview at times, and it pushes all of my media nerd buttons. So I hope that you'll find the conversation as engrossing as I did. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Yoshi Herman. So, Yoshi, you've built a profitable local news business based in Manchester, which is supposed to be a really difficult thing to do in this day and age. Did you ever think that you would get here? I did think we'd get here, but I wouldn't say it's been easy to get here. Even though I really believed in it, I think when we finally got to that moment where we were sort of breaking even in Manchester... It still sort of hit me as a really big thing, even though I've had it in my mind for a long time. When you're starting this thing off, did you sort of assume it might be a little bit faster, a little bit easier to get to profitability? The biggest unknown, I think the most scared I've been, was in the first few months when I started it, because I felt almost like a fraud doing it. Like I felt like, who are you to start publishing long-form local journalism in a in a city that you don't know very well and to expect people to read it, to put aside 20 minutes on their Sunday morning to read it and then to pay for it. I really had a real kind of personal crisis almost of thinking like, is this really something that I can do? And I, I think I'm a confident person, but you, those kind of moments really dig down into your, into, into any recesses of self-doubt that you have. So, so that, that, that was, that was definitely scary, that, that bit. Who were you to be doing this? Because you're kind of in your early 30s at this point. I didn't realize that you you didn't know Manchester very well. So why did you think you could be doing this? And what were the things that made you think, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? I think the things that thought, made me think I could do it were that I'd always in my career done this type of writing, this uh, feature writing, narrative writing, sometimes long form. I think what was scary and i'm sure a lot of people who've built things on substack and, and built other media companies have felt that is that moment where you ask yourself am i really worth the money that i'm going to ask for or, or the time that i'm going to ask for of people like can i really produce something good enough that it's not kind of wasting their time or, or wasting their money and I, I i profoundly remember how difficult that was at the time because we both know this industry news industry has been in decline. And local news has been in much sharper decline in the US and the UK, I think possibly in New Zealand as well, and <laughs> across Europe. And I think the idea that one person could start a publication on their own and write stories, and that they could kind of be claiming to rebuild any meaningful part of what's been lost in local journalism, it felt like a little bit of a, an absurd 
proposal. And, and maybe that's where some of the, the kind of doubt came from. So I've done a little bit more hustling with, with paid. From the outside, it seems like a weird thing to do. A, a, a person who's not known in a particular community, a person who's sort of established as a journalist, but without a huge profile, suddenly deciding to turn himself into an entrepreneur slash CEO slash editor-in-chief slash writer to cover local news of all things. <laughs> like, what made you want to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I get asked that so often now that the mill the mill is kind of a, a thing now. I don't think I have like an entirely satisfactory answer. It was a time in my life where I'd been living with my mum for about a year. Uh, my dad died a few years ago and I had lived with my mum for about a year after that. I was helping her with all the admin and all the legal stuff. And and after a year of doing that, I had kind of discharged all of that. I'd done the legal, in the UK, you have to do something called probate and I'd, I'd put in for probate and it had been a whole thing. And and once I'd done that, I was kind of looking for my next thing. And I, I moved to the Czech Republic uh, for a couple of months to try and learn Czech because my great-grandparents, on uh, my Jewish great-grandparents were all people who came from Czech Republic, from Austria. They had a big history in the Holocaust, so I wanted to learn about that. I wanted to write about that. And then the pandemic came along and I was back at my mom's. My sister was in the village as well, back where I grew up. And... Um, you know, I, you know, the pandemic was happening. And I think it was a few months into the pandemic or maybe two months into the pandemic that I started to think, I really need a project. Like, I don't want a staff job and I want a project. I want to try and do something. And I've been interested in the local news thing for ages. It sounds very, like, unusual or nerdy, but I used to go to conferences in the US when I was based in the US about local news. I remember I went to one in Arizona where there was a lot of sort of chin scratching about how to solve the local news problem. And... It, it just felt like a good challenge. Like I, I, I'm someone who likes to take on little challenges and try and make things, make them work. So I thought subscriptions is the way to go, clearly. And picking a city that is not like London, it's not heaving with journalists. It's got much, much lower quality coverage. And um, I thought, yeah, that Manchester, I support the, the, the football team from here, Man United. It's so th Never heard of that one. <laughs> yeah. So I had, a, I had some vague reasons to go, but I, honestly, I think really the reason was that I was looking for something to do that would, that would be interesting and challenging. And like, this felt like a huge uh, challenge, I guess. If it's not too painful for you, uh, and sorry if it is, but do you mind if I ask about your, your father passing away and like what happened and what was that time in your life like? So my dad, he died very unexpectedly. I mean, he, 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 was, um, he was not particularly healthy. Um, he had had polio as a kid. And he'd survived polio in, in the late 1940s as a kid. So he was, he had kind of survived his life against the odds. And he was disabled as well from that experience of polio in one leg. So he wasn't in great health and he was in his late 60s. But no one had expected him to die. He didn't have a, an illness that was going to indicate that he was going to die. And he died of basically to do with a blood clotting in an artery. And, and, and basically, you know, that, that killed him. So it was totally out of the blue. And it totally changed my life because I was living in New York. I was, I was doing stuff in startups that we, I think, we're, you know, we should talk about. And suddenly I was back in Sussex where I grew up in the house where I, I've always grown up, where my parents live, where my grandparents lived. And I was with my mum and this huge kind of shock had, had hit our family. And because my dad was such a big figure in my family he was the sort of wise old owl of this extended family uh, so it was a, a shockwave and it had me doing a lot of thinking about 
what I wanted to do in my life, had me doing a lot of thinking about what kind of person to be as well. I think a lot of people who experience this kind of grief, this kind of experience will perhaps relate to the idea that you think a lot about that person that you've lost and you think a lot, what is it that I admire so much about them? What am I missing so much about them? And and, and I think you start to form an idea of of, of, of traits and qualities that, that they had that, that you want to have. And I, and I really thought a lot about my dad's humility and I thought a lot about my dad's sort of um, the solidity that, that he gave to other people in his life, you know, and I, and I started to think, you know, what can I, what, what can I learn from that? What can I learn from being so on flash? What can I learn from being so sort of unconcerned about, um, about material stuff as well? So, so it was a, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was no doubt a big moment. How did it change your appetite for risk, if it did at all? It's a good question. I mean, my dad was also an entrepreneur. He ran a bunch of, of different businesses. And he always said to me that, you know, the thing that separates people who run businesses from the people who work in them is, is that you have to be willing to take really big risks, you know. And, and I, I don't know if him dying would have, would have helped me to take more risk, but... Yeah, it, it, you know, you, you do have to, you do suddenly see yourself differently. You see yourself as someone who has to make their own destiny a little bit more when you lose a parent. And I also felt like I'd been a journalist. I'd been a salaried journalist in one way or another as an editor, as a writer for about a decade when he died. And I, I, I kind of felt maybe, well, now is my time to step into the kind of stuff he used to do. Because I was always interested in business. I've always been interested in, in in what entrepreneurs do, and my dad always used to talk about it a lot. And maybe maybe when he died, it you know it it kind of made me think actually you know I should do the kind of thing that my dad did for a bit, or I should knit together the stuff that I know about journalism and media with the the stuff I've learned from him about um about business and and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, but but about risk, it's so hard to it's so hard to say. Yeah, the reason I ask is I lost a brother when I was really young when I was 11 years old, he was 14, and it really heightened my sense of mortality. And that's, you know, life is something precious and it can disappear in any moment. I'm sure you went through similar feelings. And it also made me, it made me want to like really go for things and really use my life well, which is why I say yes to stupid things like studying self-stack. And, you know, local news in a city that you don't live in or know that well, in an industry that is not known for minting billionaires is a really risky thing and something that most people would bet on failing. And you must have you must have assumed that the likely outcome was failure even when you're starting it. And maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here. <laughs> but it, it I wonder like to what extent there might have been something in your mind like, you know, life can disappear. You can you know the the worst thing the worst thing that you can ha- that can happen is that you don't have your life anymore and you've already seen what that looks like. Yeah, I don't think you are barking up the wrong tree. I possibly haven't thought about it in that way. But I, I think there's something to that. And there's also the fact that when someone dies who, who who is a big person in your life, you think a lot about what they achieved and what they did. You know, you think about kind of the the legacy that they have and you think, you know, well, you know, if I'm going to do something in this life that's meaningful and I, if I'm going to create something in my career that's that's really has an imprint on society that actually actually has a has an effect then then this is a good time to to do that no i i relate to i relate to what you're saying and i think the more conversations you have with people who've also suffered a loss like 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 you have i think it it does open your mind to what was the thing that drove me to do this 
I, I, I think the thing about local news, though, no one goes into local news because they think they're going to make a ton of money. I mean, I mean no, broadly, no one goes into journalism. But starting a little company in local news is about as un, uh, unpromising a venture as, as you could sort of possibly imagine. But there's a nice thing with this project, The Mill, and, and the thing we're building, which is you're trying to build something really high quality in an area that has been abandoned. Like it's been abandoned by the big companies who consolidated local news and then just like ruined most of the journalism by pursuing the wrong business. 100%. People had basically given up on local news as far as I can tell. Like there are these little stories that get blown up as emblematic as like revolutionary of particular small sort of community newspapers with new models that are digital first that don't really get replicated and don't really go far. And, you know, when you look at the books, honestly, it's just sort of they're barely covering their, covering their costs. There have been conferences, I've gone to them, you've gone to them for many years now where people will keep on highlighting the urgent need to fix local news. The problem has only gotten worse. Newspapers are closing down everywhere. Um, newsrooms are shrinking even at the big places. But the solution that you've struck upon, which is we'll do a slower, long-form, more in-depth, high-quality reporting and some of it will be free and some of it will be uh, for a subscription just for paid subscribers. It's not, it, it's not exactly revolutionary. <laughs> it seems pretty simple and it seems to be working. What are your thoughts on that? The, the, the simplicity of it. Why did no one else do that? I think there was a, a couple of steps of logic were, were required to rethink the situation with local news. One of them was that there's an assumption among people who work in the media, that the only way you can charge subscriptions or get any reader revenue is if you publish very high volumes of content. So th there's this idea of critical mass. And I've always heard from people you speak to at conferences, people you speak to media executives, look, you can't charge a subscription unless you're publishing, let's say, 50 stories a day, right? Otherwise, people aren't going to pay you. The moment I realized that piece of logic was flawed, or maybe it's just been, you know, overtaken by, by new logic in, in a new economy is when I was reading Substack, right? Because I was paying for a couple of Substacks and I was paying five bucks a month and I was only getting three extra paid things a month or something or like one a week. And once you are paying for something that's extremely low volume, it's highly differentiated content. Suddenly you realize, oh, that, that big piece of received wisdom isn't true. Like I'm publishing in a week on the mail two long reads, one on a Saturday, one on a Tuesday, one newsletter on a Thursday that's got a few different stories in it, and a Monday briefing that's kind of like an Axios style kind of roundup. That's fewer words than in the first six pages of the Daily Telegraph every day, right? They're publishing, let's say, 20 times as, as many words as I am per day. And yet I'm able to charge a subscription because what I'm putting out is so highly differentiated that like you can't get it anywhere else. The other thing I had to think about and unpick was the, uh, the outcome or the, the results of this business model that the big media companies have been following, particularly in the UK, of everything being free, everything being ad funded, is that the type of journalism people normally read has become commoditized. So people expect to get court reporting, crime stories, everyday news reporting, they expect to be free. So it becomes very difficult to charge for that stuff in the UK because it's being given out for free by, by, by lots of big companies. So what you have to try and do 
is come up with a new bundle, like a, a new bundle of content that people will pay for. And I thought my best chance of getting people to pay for local journalism was to make that journalism more narrative, more immersive. Basically, the kind of journalism I actually like and believe in, the kind of journalism I've done all of my career, I thought if I just do that for a local audience, maybe I can get people to pay. Yeah, there's an insight there, which is that things have changed in culture and in media and with the internet. Like we used to be in search of stuff to fill our minds, to fill our attention. We used to get bored. We used to want volume. And now we're totally inundated. There's such an abundance of content and news and information out there that the problem has flipped. Um, this isn't my insight, by the way. This is Chris, Chris Bess. He's the CEO of Substack, my co-founder, much smarter guy. And the problem has flipped to being, now I need to be careful with my attention. Now I need to be wise with how I use my time. And I want to seek out the guides. I'm not necessarily seeking out content. I want to seek out guides who will help me use my time wisely. So I think it's kind of where you're getting at with that low volume approach. And then also the thing that maybe the mistakes some of these older media people are making is not that people are seeking to pay for content or that value is represented by getting a lot of something, but people are paying for relationships and these trust relationships. Like I trust Yoshi as my guide. He's going to use my mind well. And I trust the mill because it's producing quality stuff and it's not going to throw stuff at me for the sake of throwing stuff at me. That's a relationship I value. And that's a mission I support. And that is the thing and I'm going to be happy to pay for. Not just grudgingly paying to unlock something, but I become happy to pay for that thing. And it helps then make me sort of invested in this mission alongside you and want to spread the word to my friends and peers. Yeah, I, I really relate to that. I think a lot of what people are paying for is for the thing you're doing to get bigger and better and to carry on. Like they're investing as well as paying. So it's on on that kind of continuum between totally transactional payment, like buying bread and supporting a charity. It's actually something between there because there's a, a feeling or, or even equity investment or something. There's it's something on this continuum. It's not entirely transactional. They're not paying for the words. I think they're, they're partly paying you because they, they, they're getting this great experience from reading your stuff. And, and it's journalism that isn't just about information. It's about giving you pleasure and making you feel something and making you feel more connected to the community, which is what always what we're trying to do. 55 or 60% of our subscribers come in for the year, right? And, and that's, a, that's a real down payment on the mill continuing. And, and it's helping us to continue. Let's talk about why you were in New York, because uh, you mentioned before you were in the States, uh, moved back to the UK when, when your father died. Why were you in New York? I went out to New York because my friend Jack Rivlin, who I went to university with, who I started doing journalism with when I was at Cambridge with him back at, back at college in the UK, he had just raised money for his media startup. It was called The Tab, and it was a college uh, news site. Um, it was a really clever idea to have college journalists writing about their stuff that's affecting them in a, in a less stuffy way than, than uh, college newspapers were traditionally done. And he had done amazingly well at scaling it in the UK. It was a kind of youth media phenomenon in the UK. Pretty much every university in the UK had a, had a local tab. And some of them were doing like big traffic and they had big community around them and, and that kind of thing. So I was very involved with that when I was at, at university when he started it. And then when he raised a bunch of money, it was quite a lot, it was millions of pounds to, to take it to the US and to expand it. Jack wanted me basically to be the editorial head in, in New York to, to, to guide things a little bit. And I think because I'd had a background in 
in, in writing for newspapers over here. I think he wanted, you know, maybe to drive up the editorial quality a little bit and to have more of an oversight of of what we were putting out. And and, and I think, um, yeah, I moved out there in, in late 2015 to do that job. And which must have been kind of a thrilling opportunity for you at that stage in your life. You're in your mid-20s, I assume, and you're going from London. You're like, all right, I'm going to go sort of be the editorial head of this exciting startup in New York City that you must have been pumped. I was, yeah. And I, and, and honestly, I, I, I sort of almost still am. Like it was such a, it was such a, a fun time and, and an experience. And we were trying to build a new media company in New York with new staff and new ideas. And there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around it. And, and, and I was doing it with a good friend of mine. I was, I was doing it with other people I knew already. So it was, um, yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever have anything like that again. And what were the new ideas behind this operation? We were trying to give opportunities to not only college students, but, you know, people who had just graduated to write about their experiences, but also, you know, personal stuff, but also to write about the, the way politics was affecting them and the way abortion law was affecting them and, and, and their family experiences. So I think the, the, the idea that was really driving it was putting more power in the hands of, of younger journalists and younger writers. And that we weren't obviously the only people doing that. I mean, there was this whole kind of youth media boom at the time, mainly funded by venture capital, mainly, you know, delivering huge audiences online that was basically about saying, okay, it doesn't need to be 45-year-old or 55-year-old media executives who decide what people read. It can be, it can be a, a completely younger um, group of people. Why do you think that point about it being mainly funded by venture capital is significant? <laughs> well, now I'm running something that's, um, that's subscription-funded. I look back at that time where venture capital and, and individual investors were throwing millions. I mean, you know, in the case of some of the companies like BuzzFeed and, and, and Vice, they were throwing tens of millions, hundreds of millions at essentially websites that had enormous audiences, unforetold audiences, all from Facebook. Right. And everyone was betting that that was going to be really valuable. Like there was this right. whole gold rush of like venture capital people thought, if you had 10 million users or if you had 20 million or if you had 100 million uniques, you'd be worth half a million or a billion or whatever. Right. You know, in the end, that turned out to be completely wrong, as we can see. I mean, look at the valuations, right. the way they've completely nosedived. But it was a boom. It was a kind of, it was a gold rush. When you're backed by venture capital, you tend to grow much faster than you can sustainably. I mean, they don't want you to grow sustainably. That's not what they're interested in. They're interested in the, the 20x returns or whatever. So suddenly you're just like, you're pushing this kind of steroidal audience growth that isn't really how media companies should grow. They should grow relatively gradually and incrementally because media is about relationship with the audience. It's about community. Like someone said to me the other day um, that, that media companies think they're in the business of publishing stories, but they're actually in the business of building community. Right. Yeah, I was a reporter for a publication called Pando Daily at the time, uh, covering startups and covering media startups in particular. And I covered that era of BuzzFeed and Vice and their rapid growth. And then uh, later on, it, their collapse has kind of been this precursor to this moment of depression in content businesses in the media that has probably scared some people off, scared people away from doing things like The Mill or things like Substack for that matter. Yeah. Were people stupid to believe that, though? BuzzFeed was essentially built on Facebook. Facebook was BuzzFeed's platform, for want of a better term. Were they stupid to believe that? <laughs> I think it was a semantic misunderstanding more than anything when I look back. I think when you move from one 
technological era to another. When you move from a reader meaning someone who buys a newspaper and reads half of it to a new meaning of the word reader, meaning they spend 10 seconds on a story before quitting it. If you use the same word for both of those people or both of those use cases, you are going to go down the road of really misleading yourself about how powerful an audience is or what an audience even means. But I think as soon as the industry started to understand that real relationships in media are gradually built and they're hard won and they're valuable and fleeting relationships where sponsor one spends 30 seconds every two weeks are not entirely worthless, but they're worth very, very, very little compared to the other thing I just mentioned. I think when that realization came about, everyone did feel really stupid, you know. So you were part of the misunderstanding at that time. And and fair enough, it was a hot time and uh, you were early in your career relatively and things were good. But how does it how does it feel to you now to like, or how, how does it color how you think about things having made that mistake in the past? It makes me much more obsessed about the quality of the relationship with the reader. Because I remember we, you know, we used to have these figures, right? I mean, like 5 million people have read our site that month or something. And you, you were totally buying into that. You were totally like rah-rah. There was no element of doubt in your mind, no niggles there. There definitely were. I think, I think we always knew there was, an, there was a level of bullshit. There was, a, there, was a, there was a pretty profound level of bullshit to the idea that a unique user was anything sort of equivalent to, to, to a real reader. But I think when you're inside these organizations and you're inside these kind of these rushes, you know, the, these, these boom times, it's like a tulip mania almost with these uniques. It was, it was crazy. At some point in this period that you're in New York, a website comes along or maybe it was started and you were involved in starting it called Babe.net. And Babe.net has a pretty interesting history and is a little bit notorious within insidery media circles. But can you tell me the story about how babe.net was started and what was thinking what was the thinking at the time yeah it wasn't my thinking it was um one of our staff members roshin she starts she came up with the idea i think it was a summer i remember we were running a college news company and so your traffic really really went underwater during the summer and so you had to <laughs> think of ways of like getting people to read stuff over the summer and, and there was one summer where i said to people look come up with some ideas for things that are kind of Good for our audience, young young readers that they're going to like them, but they're not they're not specifically to do with college campus news. And Roisin came up with the idea of of Babe. She just called it Babe, and she came up with this whole proposal. And it was um, she and a few other young women in the office just started. I mean, I must have given it the the go ahead basically, but but they they just started writing. They were blogging basically. It was kind like of new new Gawker in a way, or new Jezebel in a yeah, way. Yeah, I think some people said that it, it was fun and it was um freewheeling and it was confessional at times. It was newsy at times. It was very opinionated. It was funny. I think the a huge thing it was funny. I I guess because I wasn't the brains behind it, I wouldn't want to be like the one who characterizes why it was great because I think the reason they created such a connection with a lot of readers is that actually they had this whole distinctive tone to it and this whole way of thinking about like being a young woman and and, and what's a published that, that really really connected with people but the point is it just took off like it just came from nowhere and it just suddenly there was a hundred thousand people reading it and then a million people reading it what year are we talking when it started taking off i think it was the summer of 2016 when it really it started to take off and people started to to, to think hang on what's this new kind of bloggy thing 2016 is an interesting time because 
that was the year of a presidential election in the United States, and a man called Donald Trump uh, came to power. No one thought he was going to be elected, and he was elected. And there were also all these related to that, these currents in society, in culture, that were uh, starting to click into gear. And one of them was uh, the Me Too movement, uh, where there was a reckoning over bad behavior by men in media industry and the entertainment industry. I don't need to go into all that. Everyone knows it. One of the things that Babe has become known for is the story about uh, Aziz Ansari and a date that went really wrong and it created this uproar. This Aziz Ansari story went around the world. Um, it was the big news of the day on Twitter, I remember at that time. And Aziz Ansari, as a result, kind of got cancelled by that. It really harmed his career and reputation and he's done apologies and uh, rehabilitations and all that sort of stuff. That was a like huge moment, and and Babe.net took a lot of shit for that as well. Like there was a lot of uh, criticism of that, the way that was reported. The you know was it the re- was it responsibly told, and a lot of people supporting that, saying they're they're glad to see that uh, story told in that way, and for people to be held accountable for this kind of behavior. Not making any judgments on who was right or wrong, but I want to know what was that moment like when that story took off in that way. What did it feel like to be in that moment? Yeah, I mean that was that was one of the most intense kind of moments of of my life. The story was really about this celebrity who had who'd gone on the, on on a date with 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 a young woman and who and the the young woman had left that feeling coerced, like feeling like he had tried to coerce her into sex. And she had been really really upset immediately after. And she'd immediately told friends, you know, that how upset it had made her. And 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 she told our reporter about that experience. I mean, I edited the story, right? Like, I I worked on the story with our reporter, and and and, and I, you know, we we published it. I obviously never expected it to have the kind of impact that it did. I mean, there was the celebrity impact, which is maybe understandable. Like, oh, there's another celebrity where there's a story that's unedifying about their the way they've they've behaved around a woman. But there was also, I think, a much deeper impact because. It had a lot of men thinking about their own behavior. It was the kind of story where it was in this kind of, the behavior was in this gray area. It wasn't like sort of Harvey Weinstein style stuff. It was, it was more in a, it was in a more gray area where like it really forced a lot of people, I think men in particular, to think about the way they had behaved on dates or the way they had talked to women in, in scenarios like that. And I think that's why it had such a profound effect. I had people in the UK who are my friends of my male friends of mine who are getting in touch saying like, God, I've read that story three times and it's like really impacted me. You know, I had female friends getting in touch saying like, God, that's really clarified or really made me like run over in my head things that have happened to me in the past. So I think the, in a way, the celebrity impact of it was less interesting than the kind of much deeper kind of visceral impact it had with a lot of readers i think that's why it was so widely read because there were so many allegations at that time flying around about different celebrities i think the reason this one got so big was had a lot to do with that and as you say it also had to do with the the, with the decisions we'd made about what to include and, and the way we told the story we told it as a narrative um we didn't tell it as a traditional news investigation we included details that people were harshly criticised about. You people might remember the, the thing about the wine, that you know, the, the choice of the wine in the story. And I think, you know, that was to come back to your question. You know, I was a young editor. I, mean, I, I was running a tiny startup newsroom. 
I, I guess I must have been 27-ish. And, and, and most of my staff were 24 or 25 or 22. And, you know, to have something you've written poured over in an op-ed in the New York Times. So a few days later, there was an op-ed in the New York Times specifically talking about, you know, how we'd got this story wrong or how we'd gone too far or something like that. I believe they might have been written by Barry Weiss. Actually. Yeah, that was it. Uh, yeah, that was on it. Substack with Common Sense. Yeah. So, he, and and then, you know, Brian Stelter was talking about it on his show, and there was a long piece at the Atlantic, and there were millions of tweets, and there were loads of really, really supportive tweets, and I think there was a lot of pride um, within our newsroom about the fact that we had told the story and that it had such a profound effect on a lot of people. But for me, as a person, it was it was a kind of a a very lonely moment as well because I had to reckon really like personally with the choices I had made with that story, you know, what what, what we'd included, what we hadn't, the way we'd done it. Had we given Aziz Ansari enough time to respond? Um, that was one criticism. Had I included details in there that were kind of detracted from the seriousness of the allegations? Had we been responsible in the in the way we had kind of packaged the story? I think, I still think about some of those things. Um, I, I still think, I still think about the way we did the story. I, I'm actually proud of the story. I'm proud of the, of, of the reporter and, and of the story and of the the fact that it told a very different type of Me Too story from the ones that had been told up until that point. I think it really broadened out the conversation. But I also think it moved the conversation into a much less black and white, a much less cut and dried area. And I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable and like totally understandably so I, 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 I absolutely know I made made some mistakes on it, and but I, I think I, I also feel like, um, you know, I also feel like it was it was the right thing to it was the right thing to publish, and, and I'm glad we published it in a way in a style that really hit home because I think there's a value to sometimes doing a piece of journalism that because of the way it's narrated has a greater impact. It really it touches you in a different way than if it was a sort of newsy investigation with all the big the big details at the top. So where are your regrets there? I think um, as the weeks went on, I really took on the idea that by including some details, like you know, the wine thing and there are a few other things, I think including those details, I think they did detract from the core facts of the story. I think they made, they made the really serious thing that that young woman was telling us about. I think they, you know, they, they, were, they were details that she, she told us, obviously, you know, but I think including them... Um, it didn't. It didn't cheapen the story, but I think it it provided a distraction. Just to clarify here, when you say the wine thing, is it? Do you mean that there was this sort of inordinate focus on some color details uh, that seemed to serve the narrative more than the point? It wasn't even inordinate focus. It was the fact that I left them in there. Like the traditional thing in in journalism, when you've got a really really big story, is you kind of you 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 just stick to the really big claims because you don't want to distract from them. And I. And I didn't go for that approach. We tried to tell a really kind of narrative story about what had happened to that young woman on that night and how she felt. And one of the details that she mentioned was that she noted that he hadn't offered her which wine, you know, to have. And we just mentioned it in passing. And, and you know, it felt like a little bit of a metaphor for like how he, he later in the night wouldn't or, or, or some sort of like some sort of sort of early sign that like he wasn't going to that he was going to kind of dictate the terms of, 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 of the interaction. And then that foreshadowing, I don't know, maybe I thought that was clever. Like maybe I thought that was a, a poetic foreshadowing. But actually, if I'd had maybe female colleagues, senior female colleagues to, and I'd really spoken to them about that, and I'd really thought, hang on, is this, is there a danger that this, you know, we might like this as a literary detail, but is there a danger it might cheapen the, the, the story and the experience? 
I think, yeah, given, given the amount of people who said it, it, you know, including in the comment pages of the New York Times, yeah, you have to reflect on that and say, maybe I got that, that bit wrong. And I'm sure I got other bits wrong. I, I don't, I, I've probably blocked out other bits that I got wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, it was a, it was a really, um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was kind of a, a really, really intense and, and, and semi sort of chastening experience. Right. Yeah. I don't want to make you dwell on it. I'm sure it must be painful. You, you look uncomfortable dis- discuss, discussing this. Um, I don't want to drag, drag you through hell. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's actually not like that. I find it, it's one of those ones in life where you never know. You, I think you'll never fully know what you got right and you got wrong there, but I've, um, I feel good about the story we published and I'd hate to think that there were the decisions I made that, 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 that kind of, that, that meant it wasn't as good of a story. But then I, I come back to this idea that so many people responded to it in such a visceral way. And I, I do think, I think that's a kind of thumbs up for, for at least the broad way that we did it. And that wasn't the end of the attention on Babe.net, uh, but it might have precipitated these other stories that would later come out. One of the major ones was in New York Magazine, The Cuts, where they profiled the company uh, or the, the publication, Babe.net. Uh, Alison Davis visited the office uh, went to a happy hour with you guys and ended up writing about how, surprise, surprise, this newsroom that was being run by people in their 20s in, in New York involved a lot of drinking and some drugs, perhaps, and a partying and some hookups, basically. I don't want to go into the sort of the lurid details. They're not particularly lurid. There's nothing unexpected for people at that stage of their life and their kind of job. But I want to know what it was like to have your job and your personal life to some extent poured over like that and published in a major magazine. Well, it was deserved, you know, it was deserved. I'd, I'd been running a publication or I'd been helping to run a publication that poured over other people's lives and the, and the pointed out the flaws in other organizations. The Aziz Ansari story, I mean, that, that must have come at huge personal cost to him, the fact that we published that. Even though we were nobody and, and he was a, the biggest star of Netflix, it still came at a big personal cost to him that we published that story. And the fact that a great magazine journalist eventually sort of came for us and picked apart the way our organization worked and the way I had behaved and the totally chaotic and, and immature way that I had managed my news operation, that was fair. I think if you're a journalist and, and you make mistakes in, in running an organization and, and, and people point those mistakes out, I, I think you'd be... You'd have to be a very hypocritical person to think that that was, you know, unacceptable or to think that that was a, an unfair treatment. Yeah, it was definitely traumatic. It was a difficult time for me. And it was a weird experience as well because you spend your life writing about people and you spend your life like accumulating allegations from different sources and going around and and, and, and trying to paint a picture of this organization is not quite what you think it is. And this guy who's running this organization isn't, isn't, you know, sticking to his publicly held principles in private. And then someone, you know, someone's doing it about your operation. And I, you know, on the one, on, on, a, on a trivial level, it was a real lesson in journalism as well, having one of America's great magazine writers, you know, doing a long form feature about your, your team. But on a moral level, maybe, and I, I, I guess I haven't spoken about this that much, so I, I don't have quite have the, the right words for it but it was a big moment of of recognition and and of um thinking okay well you know these things have been pointed out about how we were running the organization and how i personally was behaving in terms of having relations with people i work with and and the rest of it you know what 
is that the kind of person I want to be? Is that, you know, is that the kind of way I want to relate to people who I work with and, and, and who, who are around? And it, it made me think a lot about how careless I'd been. You know, I, 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 I was young, as you, as you say. I, I you know, 27 or 26 or 27, 28 during that period, running a newsroom of really young people. And, 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 and I, you know, the, the going out and the drinking and, 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 and all, all of the well-documented stuff like that, I think that was one thing. But I think the really careless thing was, I think when you have relationships with people who you're working closely with, you're putting them at grave risk of being really uncomfortable or of derailing their career in some way. You're putting people at risk of, of you are putting yourself at risk of sort of misusing your power. And that was so careless. It happened at an interesting stage in your career as well, sort of an on-the-rise reporter and editor in your mid-20s, getting into your late 20s a little bit. And then this kind of bombshell moment happens in your career. Were you worried about what might happen? Like, did you think there might be uh, trouble sort of recovering from this or getting back to you know, more hardcore journalism, what was going through your mind? I think I did. I think I was worrying about that. But there was this weird coincidence of things, which is that my dad had just died around that mm. time. By the time these kind of things were happening, you know, with uh, with, with Alison's story and and, and with um, with the way that, that, you know, Babe.net was kind of being dissected. It's like we had been out dissecting people's lives and suddenly we were being dissected. And the time that that was happening was when I had just lost my dad. So it was so, it's so hard to unpick those different things. It's a humbling thing, actually, because when I'm writing about other people now, when we're publishing a big long read on the mail, I will be thinking, what could be in this story that this person would be really hurt by or that they'd really feel like that's not right, like that's not accurate, that's not the right way to go about it? Because there were, there were some things in, the, in that story about Bay where I thought, huh, I find that framing like a little bit unfair or I find the, the way that quote's been used like really like misleading about what happened. And that's, I'm not criticizing, in a way, I'm not criticizing the reporter because I think that's so inherent to journalism. We're constantly trying to reduce really multifaceted, complex things to like a narrative line. And, 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 and you know, the, I think the hardest thing maybe about that time was just like, I felt like a few things in there were just like not quite right and, and whatever. But as I said, the big picture is that I felt like the overall treatment I got was broadly fair and it was totally legitimate for other people to write about me. Yeah, they must have been a big experience for you. And I can see how it sort of might ultimately result in a kind of reinvention, voluntary or not. And it's interesting that you came out the other side of that with the local news uh, business, uh, which seems to be kind of the opposite of the Babe experience in a way. And I do want to talk briefly about why Babe died eventually, because it's my understanding that while that sort of coverage, that press um, may have hurt and been personally difficult to deal with, including for all the other people who worked at Babe, that wasn't what killed Babe. It was more like the Facebook algorithm changes killed Babe. Is that, is that a fair reading? Yeah, I think so. I think we were talking earlier about this kind of big boom that was happening in, in an online ad-funded media. And we had a decent audience on Babe. You know, millions of people read Babe every month. But it wasn't so big that... Um, that you could really, really monetize it properly with ads. And, you know, we were burning a lot of cash. I mean, you know, the babe had come out of the tab. The tab was burning money. Babe was burning money. And the tide was coming out or coming in. What, what's, what does the tide do? I, I, the tide was going out. I think out it, go, it goes out. Yeah. <laughs> I think and then you, sometimes you reveal to have no clothes on when That's the tide it. goes out. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. So the general metaphor. But to get the metaphor right, I think the tide was going out on that particular 
era of media. And, you know, we did, I think we did go out, we did go out and try and raise some money for, specifically for Babe. I remember that some of those meetings were going on when I, when my dad died. So I just remember being in the process and then suddenly being ripped out of the day to day. But I think, I think the big thing was probably what you just put your finger on. Like this industry was suddenly shifting. Loads of money had been going into all these new sites and then suddenly VCs had realized, hang on, this isn't anything that we thought it was going to be. I think we were up against that. On the tab, I mean, the tab was eventually sold, you know, not for $50 million or whatever, but it was sold to a, another media company. And, and Jack, who founded the tab, like, you know, kind of skillfully guided it to its next iteration um, under new owners. But there was a, it was a sad time though, because even though we'd had, we'd had, as you say, like a lot of these ups and downs, there was a really, really strong core team there who really liked each other and who hung out a lot and who were very, very good at what they did. You know, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever shut down a, a business, but it, it, I, I remember the calls I had to make to my sort of key people to tell them, look, we, we've exhausted these, these fundraising options and I've just had this terrible thing in my life, so we're not going to be able to carry on. And it was, it was one of the hardest, um, it was, yeah, some of the hardest sort of conversations I've, I've had um, in my sort of business life. So yeah, that, that was the end of that. So it must feel very satisfying to get the mill to a point of profitability after a couple of like years of hard scrabble, honest work, not relying on venture capitalists, and having gone through that experience where you've ridden the roller coaster with Babe and watched it go away. What's that experience been like? Yeah, it's it's additionally pleasing to be able to get to this break-even profitability mark because of I've been in, involved in media startups where you you run out of money and also like where you have to raise money. And like your, your cash burn is, is really high and, and you've got this kind of clock that you're, your burn clock, all that kind of world, like it's, it, it definitely makes it additionally satisfying, but just like, it, like anything in life, you know, whenever you do something new, you're, 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 you're pulling together all the experiences and lessons you have from your past things. And maybe me with this more than most people, you know, lessons in, in terms of how to build the business and and the model and, and going for subscriptions and going for like real relationships with readers, lessons about how to be with your staff and how to build a team and how to be responsible about like leadership and, um, and, and trying to treat people in the right way and, 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 and that kind of thing. So uh, lessons, I think maybe also from my dad about the, the kind of sacrifices you have to make if you want a business to work and, and the kind of values you have to have and like the integrity you have to have to make sure that the the thing is really a believable thing that people can rely on, that people can rely on for their incomes and that um, readers can rely on for their local information and, and everything like that. So it, it's every time I think you start something, it's a it's a big old tapestry of all the things you've you've experienced before. And and I hope that that's one of the reasons why the mill's been successful so far is that it's drawing on a lot of lessons and and, and also you know mistakes. You've started new publications based on the mill's model in Sheffield with the Tribune and in Liverpool with the Post. How are those other two publications going? Well, they've been phenomenal. I mean, the doubt when I started them was like, was the mill just a flash in the pan? Like, you know, it's like one city. Because people, it's so funny, would you, would you, the mill was taking off and, and it was doing really well. And, and I, I think it was beating maybe expectations, you know. And then I would meet people, media people down the pub and they'd be like, yeah, but Sheffield's going to be hard. Like you wouldn't want to try and do something in Sheffield, you know. And then there'd be some like local reason. You wouldn't want to do this in Liverpool. I found journalists who really loved this kind of journalism in two new cities and I backed them. I mean, I help out with editing and they, they work in the same company, but, but really like we've, we've allowed them to create new publications in these cities 
and allow them to do the kind of journalism that they want to do. And that's been a huge joy. Like they're, they're doing incredibly well. I mean, I, just, I, I don't know, the Sheffield's about to get to a thousand paying members. I think it's a nine, 950 or something. So hopefully get that by Christmas if we sell lots of gift subscriptions. And um, I think the the post in Liverpool's on is about 650, pushing 700. So you can see that even though they're much newer, they started a long time after the mill. They're they're on the same sort of trajectory. Are you confident that this model is replicable? Yeah, I, that's like a, maybe the startup-y way of to thinking about it. But I think a better way to think about it is like, do people in big communities in the UK want high quality journalism on a regular basis? Yes, clearly. Like, we, you know, you've seen that in Manchester, you've seen it in Sheffield, you've seen it in Liverpool. So maybe the internal way you think about it is, is this model scalable? But like the real way in society is like people have been starved of proper journalism about their cities and about their communities for ages. And when you offer it to them, they like it and they're willing to pay for it. Great. Well, let's hope that more people follow your lead and that you can uh, grow this uh, burgeoning news empire into something uh, really big and that people take a bet like you've taken a bet. I just want to finish this by asking you if you've got any any writers that you would really recommend, writers who you read on Substack that you think everyone should be paying attention to. Yeah, definitely. So one of the first people I started reading on Substack was Helen Lewis, who's a, who's a journalist over here. I think she writes on staff for the, the Atlantic. She has a really interesting kind of eclectic newsletter. It's not a paid for one, but it's a Substack where she kind of rounds up interesting stories she's read that week a few thoughts along with them very very eclectic often recommend stuff that you haven't come across so i really like her i think it's called the blue stocking um there's also a really great one called past the orcs uh, aux which is by a music editor at the telegraph eleanor halls and she writes about kind of she takes you behind the scenes of what it's like to commission like celebrity interviews or music features also what it's like to interview people the kind of ethical decisions that go into kind of culture journalism and the, and the kind of um why some kind of celebrity interviews turn out like they do that kind of thing i'm, I'm not quite characterizing it right but her past the orcs is really really good and then finally one that's done really really well in the uk is vittles mm. about food i think it's based in london there's a, a, lot, a big bunch of people write for that and it's really really interesting writing about food that's much better on the culture of food and much better on like the communities that that produce food in London and um, they do long form and they do like just really eclectic stuff as well. So I I recommend Vettel's. Excellent. Yoshi, thanks for joining us on the Active Voice. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for being so open. Thanks for going through that painful stuff. Um, And congratulations with the success of The Mill. Thanks very much, Hamish. You can find The Mill at manchestermill.co.uk. You can find the links to the other publications and everything else we discussed in this conversation up on Substack Reads. That's R-E-A-D And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D dot substack dot com. Mm-hmm.